So the rest of us take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own with you, you can uh, grab one of those pew Bibles in the seat in front of you. One of those pockets contains a few throughout the row there. And turn to page 836 in that pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we want for you to have that copy of God's Word. So take that as a gift from us if you yourself do not own a copy of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. We're continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John together this morning. In the verses that I just mentioned, we have seen in our previous studies how John the Apostle is emphasizing Jesus' miracles as signs which point to the reality of who he is as Messiah and certainly as the Son of God. Uh, That is the one who is eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And so far, this has been seen in ways which are less visible, though there are a few things that Jesus has done. When I say less visible, I mean not visible to large crowds as of yet, though some are getting word and some have seen. Um, uh, But this causes people like Nicodemus, a religious leader, to stand up and take notice. So that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to inquire of him concerning the things that he has seen or heard about and knowing this is one who can only come from God. Though this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus is cordial, that is not always the case with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as we will see in our passage this morning. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me one more time this morning? I'm going to read aloud God's Word as you follow along. I'm in uh, the English Standard Version this morning. John chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I need to pause and tell you some of your versions are going to have verse 4, The ESV does not include that, but you'll notice in some of your versions that that is bracketed. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, uh, but just uh, know that that's why I'm not reading verse 4, because it's not in the translation I have, and we'll explain that in just a little bit. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was 
why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You may be seated. That is the word of God. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud this morning. Would you join me in prayer once again before we dig into this passage together? Lord, we recognize this morning that this is your word, inspired by your spirit in the original autographs, of which we have, thankfully, wonderful translations in our own language. And Lord, we open these Bibles this morning in gratefulness, and we ask for assistance by your Holy Spirit now to illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of the truths that we Study together this morning, Lord, may it not just be for academic purposes. May we not just know things better when we leave here, though certainly knowledge leads to, uh, Lord, a greater worship of you if we apply it properly in wisdom. And that's what we're asking for, Lord, this morning. I pray that you would get me out of the way, humble me still, in Jesus' name, amen. For those of us who are believers in Christ and therefore also hold to a historic understanding of Christianity... We are familiar with why we suffer. It is, of course, because of the fall, because of the fall of mankind due to the sin of Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. If they broke his command concerning that law, that they would surely die. In some of my conversations with folks who are antagonistic against the Bible... They seek to accuse God of lying since Adam and Eve did not die immediately after eating from that tree. It is, of course, true that they did not die physically immediately, but that they did spiritually. That in some metaphysical way, there was a change in their relationship with God. They were no longer free from sin. They were no longer free from sin's effect, which would now kill them. What was prospective, what was potential sin and death were possible in that test became a reality and the curses that follow further that reality so that mankind and the world became broken Do we recognize that this morning we live in a broken and fallen world right make no mistake sin and death have affected us all but in some cases it manifests itself more visibly And by this, I'm not saying that some suffer more visibly because of their own sin. That may certainly be the case. may be the case because uh, of the consequences of sinful choices that people are suffering greater and in more visible ways than others. But just because of sin being in the world, we recognize that people are born in many ways, not just with evidence of sin in their heart, but the, uh, the external evidence that sin has affected the world. And it is because uh, the effects of the fall are more visible in a broken and sin-cursed world in some rather than others. Certainly all are sinners, all sin, as Paul states, but the real effect of the fall are seen more readily in some situations than others. In fact, we see that in our text today. Because of the fall, Paul says creation is yearning for redemption, and God has fulfilled that in the coming of the Son of God in the Incarnation. Eternal God putting on creation in order to uh, redeem creation from the curse 
And this is a part of what is seen in Jesus' earthly ministry as he performs miraculous signs that point to his mission of redeeming sinners. In those miracles, he not only turns water to wine, but as we see in our text today, causes the lame to walk. It is a signification of the ultimate undoing of the curse, though it is not a completion of that. You get that? I want you to hear that again. When Jesus heals someone, it is a miraculous sign that points to to who he is, but also to what he has come to do. And in that moment, in that healing, it is an undoing of the curse, at least in part, for that individual, for that group of people, whoever it may be, to see that Jesus is, yes, the Messiah, but he is also God. He is creator. And in this is a reminder that we are not seeking to go back to the garden, but to a new heavens and a new earth, which go beyond the original paradise, where sin and suffering and death are no longer potential. The new heavens and new earth. Remember, Jesus speaks of entering into the kingdom and that this is eternal life. These kinds of events are glimpses of that kingdom and the healing that comes first to the soul and the life and death and resurrection of Christ, but also a glimpse of the eternal where we are given bodies fit for eternity to dwell with the Lord forever. You know, an easy way to remember this is, an acute little saying is, reverse the curse. Right? Jesus comes to reverse the curse. And we talk about the inauguration of the kingdom and we're getting glimpses of that here as Jesus heals those who are unable to be healed otherwise. In these events we see in our text today, we see, as our main point says, you can see that written for you on the back of your worship folder there, Jesus shatters the messianic expectations of the people of his day, which continues to shape our understanding today. So we're we're studying the scriptures. We always want to see in what sense did this make sense to those who were a part of it at the time who were reading these accounts later, and therefore how it affects us today. Jesus shatters the messianic expectations of the people of his day, which continues to shape our understanding today. I want us to see this morning three authenticating realities of Jesus' interactions in this passage. Three authenticating realities of Jesus' interactions in this passage. Number one is this, in verses 1 through the first part of verse 9, Jesus truly heals. Jesus truly heals. John sets the scene for Jesus' next miracle by giving us the reason for him being there. Look again at chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, after this last event that uh, Jesus is a part of there, remember in Galilee, he heals the nobleman's son, um, but he does it from a distance. The man has to believe. He goes home to see that this has truly occurred. Now there's a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, One of the reasons that John emphasizes this, and the gospel writers emphasize this, is to show that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfilled the feast days. He was a perfect Jew. He lived perfectly as the law commanded him to live. Which, by the way, we need to be thankful for because we cannot do that. And we're going to see that unfold in this passage. In fact, it's a, it's a very interesting juxtaposition, this idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem to go to the feast as he is supposed to do, yet in the eyes of the religious leaders, as we'll see, he breaks the Sabbath, which he does not do, by the way, because he cannot do that. He would not do that. But there he is fulfilling what he is supposed to do as a Jew, 
and being at the feast. Now, there is, it says in verse 2 in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five, five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Many were there because they believed that the pool had healing powers. Now, let me just address really quickly this issue of why verse 4 is missing from the ESV as well as some other versions that you may have, and not from the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard has it bracketed, etc. If you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you can do this for homework later. I don't want you to get distracted by this, but it's important for you to understand this this morning. If you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you'll see a note about how this verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts. This has to do with what manuscript evidence we have available. It is likely that a scribe wrote a marginal note, or perhaps even in later manuscripts inserted this in there, explaining why this pool was so sought after for healing. This is the this idea of verses and footnotes like this is a greater issue we're going to have to deal with as we come to John chapter 8, especially... Um, and uh, we'll deal with that actually in a separate message, almost like a lecture, before we get to John 8. In fact, I've, I've asked Greg Fulner, our resident uh, linguist, to deal with that uh, uh, in a sermon and lesson for us. But here's what we need to understand this morning. We have, we have reliable translations of the Bible. If you have questions about that immediately after the service, don't let that distract you. But we have reliable translations of the Bible in fact, it may be that that scribe was seeking to describe the reason more so why people were laying there and wanted to be put into the pool. They, they, they believed that an angel would come down and stir those waters and that if they got in there, they would be healed. The point is that John contrasts the mystical healing pools, which may have had some sort of a temporary effect on aching joints or something of that nature because of the nature of the kind of pools these were. But they were not ultimately truly healing anyone. But this contrasts with Jesus who can truly heal. So when Jesus sees the man lying there, he asks him if he wants to be healed. Look at what it says. Verse 6. Do you want to be healed. Now certainly, anyone who has dealt with what this man has dealt with for 38 years would answer yes. But he does not quite understand what Jesus is offering to him, and so he explains to Jesus why he, in his mind, cannot be healed. Look at what he says. The sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, in other words, even if, even if I were able to have someone carry me to this, another steps down before me. He's unable to get down into these waters where he believes that there might be a chance that he could be healed. Now, clearly the man does not know who he's speaking with. And this is what means, means, uh, makes Jesus' statement such a bold one in verse 8. <laughs> Jesus said to him, and this is a command, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And it says that the man argued with him. No, sir, can you please pick me up and put me in the pool? Is that what it says? No. <laughs> it says, and at once. Maybe, maybe some of your translations say immediately. The man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Notice a few things here. The healing is immediate. It's, it's instantaneous. Though the man had suffered for 38 years, it was instantaneous. Now think about this just from a purely physiological sort of perspective. What happens to your muscles if they have not moved in 38 years? They're atrophied, right? They, they cannot move. <clears throat> this is not just an aching joint that if I get down in the pool and there may be some warmth to these pools, there may be some sort of salt-like quality to these pools. You know, some of you use Epsom salts in a foot bath, right, to help your aching feet. This is legitimate. Uh, this is a legitimate need for fully organic healing. And that's what happens. This man instantaneously gets up and he walks, having not walked, perhaps for his whole life, but certainly for the last 38 years. Can I just, as a side note, say, faith healers of our day are not doing what Jesus does here. They are charlatans. They are fakes. If God wants to heal, he does not need them. And every time there's a healing in Scripture, it is always Jesus or His apostles or those closely associated with the apostles who are doing it so that the sign points to either the validity of Jesus Himself as Messiah or their message about Messiah. And the other thing that this helps us recognize is the time. The time period. This helps us see that we have to wait on God. We have to wait on God. God does not work according to our timing. Now listen to me. I believe that God can totally heal. He can heal utterly, organically, in a moment, if that's His will. He can do all according to His holy will. But God may be doing something else in that time period. This was 38 years. I'm not going to have a raise of hands of how many of you are older than 38 years. <laughs> Or double 38 years. But those of you who are 14, 15, 16 years old, 38 seems like a really long time off, doesn't it? Like 38, that's kind of getting ancient, isn't it? Think about that. 38 years. This man is laying there. Listen, Paul says, Your suffering is light and momentary in comparison of the glory that is to be revealed. The question is not, will God heal me? He will either heal you now or in eternity. But what is God doing through this to conform me to the image of Christ? That is the question. We may suffer our entire lives, but what is our hope? It's the hope of glory. You see, Jesus is unveiling a little glimpse of the kingdom here. The reverse of the curse. The reality that the fall does not have a permanent effect because He is Creator. And He decides that. And He may say, there is something greater, there's a greater glory for me, a greater good for you in not being healed. And having to wait 38 years, 45 years, 70 years, or your lifetime for that until He brings you into glory. But in this moment, 
In this moment, it is for God's glory that this man would be healed. He didn't even ask for that. Jesus offered it to him. Jesus, who created the world, who can command the seas and the winds, commands the cells and the molecules and the atoms and the stuff we can't even see. R.C. Sproul famously said, there is not one atom in the universe that is outside of God's sovereign control. Well, even though this is a miraculous sign of who Jesus is, and it's incredible, there are still critics. But it is from this sort of irreligious sentiment that Jesus also sets this man and others free, as we see in our next point. Jesus sets free. Jesus truly sets free. Jesus truly heals, but Jesus also truly sets free. Look at... uh, Verse, uh, the latter half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And in the mind of a Jew who would have been reading this, <clears throat> their immediate thought would have been, ooh, what are you doing, Jesus? This is the Sabbath. We have just seen how Jesus sets this man free from his disability. Jesus, Jesus also sets him free from the restrictions of Pharisaical legalism. The legalism of the Pharisees, the Jews, when that indication that a proper indication of the Jews in John usually is equivalent with the Pharisees say to him in verse 10, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They immediately go to what day is it and what are you doing? Notice the interaction here though in verses 11 through 13. But he answered them, The man who, notice what it says here, the man who healed me, that man said to me. So he's emphasizing, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed by Jesus did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. You see what's missing there? The man who did what to you? Wait a minute, you're, you're saying that you were unable to walk previously and now you're able to walk? Hey, wait a minute. I, I, I recognize you. You're that guy who's been laying by that pool over there who I really don't want to get near. But you've been laying there for a long time. It's, it's not... Who was the man who healed you? It was, who was the man who told you you could take up your bed and walk? Tell us who this man is so that we can correct him. Not tell us who this man is who healed you so that we can worship him. Tell us who this man is who told you you can walk. We have some words for him. The Pharisees are not satisfied with the reality. This man who has been disabled for 38 years is miraculously healed and is walking in their presence. No, their concern is with whether or not God's law is being broken. And can I tell you something? Most of you know this. This isn't even God's law. Why? How do we know that? First of all, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't break God's law because guess what? He's God. That's the point he's going to make in a minute. This is a self-imposed law created by the Pharisees to protect God's law. (laughs) 
This is what legalists do. They take God's law and they put an extra protection around it. The problem with legalism is that it's always inconsistent and almost always a way for you to measure other spirituality. And that's what they're doing, is it not? They're, they're not going, oh my goodness, you're walking. They're saying, why are you walking with your mat? Who told you you could do that? Now listen, we should always be concerned with God's law. We may, in our own hearts, for our own protection, set up means of accountability to keep ourselves from breaking God's law, but we cannot set these up as standards by which others must live. In other words, there may be things that God says, you should do this or you should not do that, And we, in our own hearts and minds, know ourselves, and we're struggling with sin, and so we may say, you know what, I'm going to set up a restriction here that's going to keep me with my propensity toward that sin from doing that. But that is not God's law. That is a self-imposed restriction in order to keep myself from sinning. But for me to take that and then say, this is how you now have to deal with that sin, is improper. In fact, in many ways, what we see happens with the Pharisees is it becomes damning. Because it is a way to measure righteousness and say, you are in or you are out of the kingdom. Listen, we all break God's law in our need of redemption and reconciliation. Even though God's laws, just thinking of how they are described in the Ten Commandments, are for our good and the good of others and the glory and worship of God, we will fail at them. And this is why we need Christ. If you just take Jesus' boiling down of the Ten Commandments into love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, we know that we fail at that. And if we're coming at those from the perspective of being in Christ and desiring to fulfill those, we know that those things, or at least we ought to remind ourselves that those things don't save us. Those, Those then become a law for us as how we ought to live because we are in Christ. But, and, and, then, and then maybe we set up some of these accountability and restrictions for ourselves. But it cannot be for a measure of righteousness. As I stated in our opening illustration, it is the effects of sin that are seen externally in this man. Not that his disability is because of his own sin, but because of the fall. Jesus comes and undoes this 38-year curse and puts on display who he is. And even though these religious leaders are unaware that it is Jesus who has done it, they are more concerned about why this man is walking with his mat and who gave him permission than seeing what is right in front of them. Is that not the same temptation that we face, brothers and sisters? We need to encourage those who are young in the faith to be obedient to God, to live how God has called them to live. But rather than discipling and walking with them in order to show them God's word and what it actually says, it's much easier just to give them a list of do's and don'ts. Isn't it? You want to live for God? Here you go. Do this, don't do that. And we're lazy. I don't want to have to spend time with you. (laughs) Walking with you. Encouraging you how to live for God and Christ. Here, just do this. Don't do that. It's easier. By the way, these aren't God's laws. These are mine to keep you from breaking God's laws. There you go. It's dangerous. It's damnable. Jesus later in the same exchange says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They're, they're looking and searching in the scriptures. How do we get to the point where we're righteous enough for God to accept us? And, 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 and Jesus is saying, you can't. You miss the point of the law that exposes your sinful heart and should make you cry out, Lord, there's got to be some way. And he provides the way. They had staked their eternal life in obedience, which they thought they could achieve from the glory of people, as Jesus then says in that same passage. But it is about who he is and what he does, and from our perspective, what he has done. In fact, Jesus addresses this to the man in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Jesus has just healed this man from 38 years of disability, of not being able to walk. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. In other words, look at things now through this lens. I have healed you. Then he says this, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What worse thing could be for this man than suffering as a disabled man for 38 years? There is the prospect of eternal suffering in sight here. This man's new ability to walk did not abdicate him from the responsibility of knowing God through Christ who has just healed him. Rather, this man still needed to deal with the part of him that Jesus implied is still broken. Who's to say that this man did not heed Jesus' word and repent in that moment? He may have. That is not the point of the passage, but as is drawn out in others of Jesus' healings, he not only has the power over creation to heal, but as the creator over men's lives and souls as well. And so there are times where he heals someone, but first he says their sins are forgiven. And then the, the proof that he is able to forgive sins is in the fact that the person gets up and walks. See, Jesus shatters the messianic expectations of the people of his day, which continues to shape our understanding today. And he does this again with the man who had been disabled. Look to who I am. I have just healed you. Now listen, your sin is another issue that needs to be dealt with. This man maybe in that moment would have said to Jesus, well, how do I... Not sin. John doesn't give us the details of this. How do I not sin anymore? Well, as Jesus has already talked about eternal life with Nicodemus, and he's talked about eternal life with the woman at the well. Who's to say he did not also talk with this man about eternal life? It's not the point of the passage. But Jesus does enter into that kingdom conversation with him. And... As we talk of Jesus shattering messianic expectations, he certainly does this in our final point. Jesus is truly God. Jesus truly heals. He is truly able to set free both from not only this disability, but the Pharisaical legalism and set free from sin into salvation. But he also now talks about the fact that he is truly God. Look at verse 15. Then the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus exposes the one who had healed the man, because the man goes and tells them, Oh, by the way, now I know who it is. (laughs) This man's name is Jesus. 
<clears throat> you can almost hear that uh, the, the Pharisees, you know, and, and that sort of cartoonish voice, that dastardly Jesus, they're already mad at him, right? We should have known it was him. <clears throat> so the Jews, it says, began to persecute him because he had done this on the Sabbath. The word for persecute there means to harass someone, especially because of, get this, beliefs. <clears throat> especially because of beliefs. Their concern is with keeping uh, the Sabbath and that it's not their own, it's not God's standard, it's their own standard. <clears throat> they fail to see that a man who's been disabled for 38 years has been completely and miraculously healed and intend to look to the ways of their law <clears throat> that have been broken rather than see that this man's been healed. And now that they know it's Jesus, you can almost hear it, this guy again. They take the opportunity to harass him. But instead of responding to their legalism, which, by the way, he's already done by healing on the Sabbath and telling a man to take up his mat and walk, he takes a different approach. Jesus explains that he is working as his father works. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working now, immediately, you may, you may wonder, in what sense is the Father working? Well, in theological language, we like to say that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, God is pure act. God is. God is. And in His isness, in His fullness of who He is at all time for eternity, He is sustaining all things and at all times, and all that will come to pass is in His hands. God is immutable, and as such, though he rests from creation on the seventh day, God needs no rest, truly, for he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And as Jesus says, Sabbath is for the man, not for God. So Jesus says he is working as his Father is working. In the Jewish mind, they understood that though God rested on the seventh day, he at the same time must be the one who is upholding the universe, that God is truly working as it were at all times. So, so, the, so Jesus is not saying something that they would have disagreed with. They wouldn't have said, well, God's not working all the time. No, in their own theology, they understood that God had to be the one sustaining the universe. The problem, the issue with what, they, with what, with what Jesus says, the issue they had with that is that he's saying he's doing the same thing. That's the issue. Jesus says he is working as his father's working. He is saying, I'm doing what he is doing. We must not miss the importance of what is being said here, the theology that is here. In the incarnation, Jesus is truly God. I'm sorry, in the incarnation, Jesus is truly man. And as he has been eternally, truly God. He's both. In the incarnation, he becomes man. He takes on humanity. But he is still eternally God as he has always been. John has already stated in the prologue that the word, Jesus Christ, is with God, that he is God. That the world is created through him. This is an outworking of that truth in space and time in the incarnation. That's what we're seeing here. Remember, John's prologue is kind of an outline of the things that he's going to be saying in the rest of his gospel. So if, if Jesus is creator, here he is in the incarnation interacting with creation in a kingdom purpose way, making all things new, at least a glimpse of that. Do you see that? 
Paul summarizes this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Just listen to it. For by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of the mysteries of our faith is the theology that at the same time that Jesus is on the earth in humanity, is also eternally everywhere present and holding everything together. If you're interested in reading more about that, it's called the Extra Calvinisticus or something like that in Latin. I probably just messed that up. But the idea that Jesus is still, at the same time he's incarnated, still eternally God, he can't lose that. And he's sustaining the universe. It is because of this kind of statement. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. That they respond the way they do in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Now, if we just stopped there and didn't read the rest of what it said, people might have a reason to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But that's not what the Jews understood Jesus to be saying. It says, making himself equal with God. Saying, as he said earlier, and we'll say again in John, I am. They certainly want to kill him. They're already mad at him. Breaking the Sabbath ramps up that anger, that reason to kill him, but even more now for making himself equal with God. This is blasphemy in their mind, and it is blasphemy, except that it is Jesus who says it, who is equal with God. And this must be accepted in order for them and for us to be made right with God. This is Trinitarian theology. This is what the Scripture tells us, that Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal in essence, in, in, in their isness, different in their what we call internal operations and the way that that is displayed in time and space as we see here. What does Jesus continually say in, in the Gospel of John? I am sent. I am doing what my Father does, or He sent me to do. I am doing what I see my Father do. I am working as He works. He is the sent one into the world to do the will of the Godhead. Listen, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of creation. He is. Do you recognize this about Him today? He is Lord of all. If you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Him, you are in far worse suffering. You're in for far worse suffering than what you've ever experienced here will ever experience in this life. You are rightly under the wrath of God for your sin because He is holy and you and I are not. And you need and I need the only righteous one to stand in our place receiving the wrath that we deserve in order that we do not receive it later. No temporal amount of suffering that you experience in this life can compare to the suffering of being under God's wrath. So I plead with you, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone, do that today. If you are one who is in Christ, 
live by his word and his standard and point others to their need of Christ and those who are in Christ to what God's word says, not your own standard. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't say, here's the list. Walk with people. Show them God's word. Walk faithfully with them as you seek to walk faithfully with Christ. At the end of our time, after I pray, Greg Fulner is going to come and lead us in our final hymn. And then Pastor Brett is going to be to my left, your right. You can come and pray with him. We invite you to do that. If you want to know what it means to trust in Christ or just have some prayer needs, he would love to do that with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I I felt like I stumbled over some words today. And um, so I pray that you would take that by your spirit and plant it deep into our hearts. Lord, it's it's your, your work, your word, your spirit who does that anyway. Pray that you would, for those of us who are in Christ, help us see the beauty of the Lord Jesus as truly God and truly man as the one who has come to die in the place of sinners who deserve that wrath that he took upon himself. And Lord, as those who, if we are in Christ, walk faithfully not to earn anything from him, but because he has called us to and he desires what is best for us. And help us to walk with others in that way. And yet, Lord, I pray for those in in this room who do not know you, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ, that, they would, that you would, Lord, by your grace, take their heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.